Today I'll be reading our scripture, which is from Mark 14, verse 1 through 11. You can follow along on the screen as I read the passage aloud for us. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is God's word. Good morning, church. Uh, If I haven't met you, I'm Jessica, and I'm glad to be here this morning. Um, We're going to continue through the book of Mark. And Mark, I hope you're going to notice, is a masterful storyteller and writer. And my hope is that we get to plunge deep into the story of Jesus further today. Mark 14 is the final chapter before Jesus' crucifixion begins. And right before this chapter of Mark 14, it's been a few days since Jesus has made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, which we know as Palm Sunday. And Jesus' popularity is also at an all-time high. He's been performing miracles and living out his public ministry of healing, feeding thousands, expelling demons, and making bold proclamations like we saw and read about last week with Dale in Mark 13. There's also this kind of tension that's building that I think the author Mark wants us to notice, and it comes in the form of crowds where we're going to pick up. It's, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been part of a large crowd, you know when it's really, really cool and exciting and the energy's there. Sometimes you can't actually like put words to it. But then sometimes you also know when the crowd might be turning a little negative or kind of scary too. Um, this is kind of this tension right here that we're gonna pick up in the book of Mark. But one crowd that's building is because of intrigue and popularity of his public ministry. In the past weeks that we saw in the past few chapters that Jesus has spent a week humiliating the Jewish leaders and the crowds that are observing this are loving this because this man, Jesus, is boldly exposing the religious, quote, experts um, of this day and his popularity is growing massively. This other kind of crowd that's forming is one that is wanting to kill and destroy Jesus. And this crowd is made up of those Jewish religious leaders, and I'm sure they're frustrated and angry and probably embarrassed at this man Jesus' bold claims that he's been making. So they're threatened and possibly angry at the ways this man has also both publicly been humiliating them. 
It's here that Mark is that masterful storyteller. We should be intrigued about compelling us to want to read further and ask ourselves, I wonder what's gonna happen here. What is gonna play out before our eyes? So before I dive even deeper, I'd love to pray for us this morning. Uh, God, would you be with us uh, this morning as we dive into your text? And God, I ask that you um, make this story come alive for us. Could we be aware of the ways that you're working and the ways that you're speaking to our lives, but also what we're uncovering in the life of Jesus? Thank you for being with us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, before we begin, I want to share with you a framework that I think will be helpful for us to approach the text this morning that I hope will be helpful. But this has everything to do with sandwiches. Now, who doesn't love a good sandwich? And you might be lost, don't worry, I promise it's gonna make sense. Just stick with me. Sandwiches, okay. Upon further inquiry, according to Google, um, (laughs) I found that there are seven categories of sandwiches around the world, right? The first one is a regular sandwich, also plain old sandwich, I guess that's what it's known as. Number two is an open face sandwich. Three, wrap. Four, pinwheel. I was joking because I think Crunchwrap Supremes are like kind of like a sandwich, I guess. Five, grilled. Six, stacked or double-decker. And my favorite, seven, anything that is sandwiched together that can be eaten. So... For me personally, what I really love is kind of weird sandwiches with weird flavor combos. So I like savory and salty sweet. So I think cranberry, but with like jalapenos and like vinegar and salt. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense in and of itself, but together you're like, it's delicious. So so you might be wondering also, you might be hungry, I guess, but what the heck do sandwiches have to do with the book of Mark? The author, Mark, is a famous, he's famous for this type of storytelling that we are going to experience through this passage specifically today. It's playfully called the Markin Sandwich, or otherwise known as interpolations. We see this in today's passage. This story is broken into two parts, and a second, seemingly unrelated story is inserted in the middle, thus resembling two literary slices of bread with the sandwich filling in the middle. Now, the whole idea and purpose of the Markin sandwich serves as the purpose of giving both stories a greater sense of meaning. So we, as the reader, can be compelled for a deeper understanding. So let's take in particular Mark 14, what we see today. Two literary slices on either side is the concept of betrayal. So both the Jewish leaders and on the other side at ending it is Judas, who's betraying. But in the middle is a story about the act of extravagance. It's right in the middle. Seemingly unrelated, right? And while betrayal and the acts of extravagance exist and are part of the story, there is something to be told there. What this story really is about, the greater meaning, is the cost of devotion. But the greater purpose, even further about this, is Mark in his book, is really about Jesus focused on teaching the disciples the truth about himself and themselves and what the Jewish Messiah really means. So meaning, Jesus doesn't want the disciples or us to miss the deeper truth about who he really is, what he has come to do, 
and that he truly is worthy of our costly devotion. It's with the powerful use of the Markin sandwich that we can begin to approach this story with drama and curiosity and intrigue to compel us to find answers. And I want us to weave two particular questions this morning within this sandwich framework. The two questions are, one, we're going to ask ourselves and reflect, what doesn't Jesus want us to miss in this part? And the second one is, what does this mean for our discipleship to Jesus? So the first literary slice, remember, betrayal, right? It's here in the point of tension that we first see the part of the Mark and Sandwich, which is about betrayal. We pick up in Mark 14, verse 1. It says, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So there are a few things going on behind the scenes here. First, the Jewish leadership finds it convenient that Jesus has come to their home turf where they can manipulate the current Roman governor into executing Jesus. However, this is really risky because of the tension that's among the people because of the Roman occupation. Even further and deeper, they are actually, we see they're afraid of riots. One false move, and they are in trouble with inciting a riot from not just a small crowd, but from thousands of people who have come for the feasts and Passover, as well as the others who have come as followers of Jesus, who have come to witness actually who this man is. It's because of this fear that the Jewish leaders realize they need to arrest Jesus in secret. So we remember, we ask ourselves the two questions that we have in this sandwich is one, what doesn't Jesus want us to miss about this? And what does this mean for our discipleship to Jesus? Upon further reflection, one thing that we might find as readers is actually extreme irony here, right? I want us to imagine that atmosphere of the crowds, right? That kind of crowd that has the electricity that you're not quite sure if it's going to be a positive or negative thing, right? But picture thousands of Jewish people coming together to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These thousands of Jews are entering the city. They might have this kind of expectant yearning for, quote, a deliverer. They've been longing for this. Can you imagine being among thousands of people collectively seeking God to show them who the Messiah is? And then you also have in this crowd those who have been following Jesus publicly to see who is this man really about. They're also yearning to see, is this guy really who he says he is? We also see the chief priests and the scribes that they've decided this Passover, a celebration that's recalled God's liberation of Israel from its slavery, which actually will not be marked by the death of Jesus. And even more ironically, that we as followers of Jesus today, or readers, should be struck with a sense of awe and wonder, because we believe Jesus to be the only true Messiah, and that Jesus is the one that the Jews were waiting and yearning for during this time. It's because of Jesus' death that the Jewish holidays would be transformed forever. Even in these two verses at the beginning, we realize that there is always something deeper going on. What can we see about Jesus? 
the second part of the Mark and Sandwich, we find ourselves in an entirely different scene of Jesus. In verses 3 through 9, this is the meat of the sandwich, or if you're a vegetarian, whatever else you put in the center of there. It's about an act of extravagance. We pick up in verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So now we jump from the tension of the plot to arrest and execute Jesus to a scene of Jesus relaxing and reclining at the home of Simon the leper. We also see Jesus enjoying dinner. Now, these aren't like the tables and chairs that we experience today in our Western context, but in ancient Israel, they're often like lounge pillows. Sounds very comfortable with like lower tables. So very little energy needs to be spent from like food to mouth, I'm assuming. So but background of this too, as well, is this posture of reclining and relaxation of dining was often reserved for royalty. And that this man named, also Simon the leper, should pique our memory about Jesus, that Jesus often dined with those marginalized in society. So the name Simon the leper, he actually isn't a leper now, but we can assume that most likely he was one that Jesus healed throughout his ministry. We also see something's happening here as well. While Jesus is dining, a woman comes to him. Now, we also might be asking, who is this woman? The author Mark doesn't tell us, However, the amazing thing about the Gospels and context of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that we can interpret this to be Mary of Bethany, according to the book of John. Now, Mary is a very common name in this day, but John tells us that this is Mary of Bethany and that Mary had a sister named Martha and a brother named Lazarus. This should all peak also our memories of the significance of these family members and context for Mary's actions. See, Mary has a deep, intimate history with Jesus. Mary is someone who knew how to sit at the feet of Jesus. Mary is someone who cried out in heartbreak and grief to Jesus. Mary is someone who also witnessed Jesus raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. And Mary knew deep friendship and intimacy with Jesus because he would often come to the family home with the disciples among his ministry. We also read further that she came with an alabaster jar of pure nard. See, the most precious oils and perfumes were held in alabaster flasks or jars. The author Mark never actually tells us why this woman owns such expensive perfume, but many cultures throughout history, like ancient Israel, women would have been restricted from owning land, business, and other property. They could, however, own clothing and jewelry. And alabaster jars and oil like this one were often a family investment that was made over generations. And these jars were often passed down from generation to generation as heirlooms. And it also could be that this perfume is actually the woman's nest egg. It's her life savings or her dowry. This container was of great significance and cost. We see what she did in verse 3. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. She broke this jar, and some scholars believe she broke it because she knew she would never use it again, and it was going to be fully offered as a gift. 
See, she didn't just do a few little sprinkles of oil. She poured the entire flask of oil on Jesus' head. Now, this was a sizable amount, enough that it probably ran down his hair and face. And this was her offering of extravagant worship and a gift to Jesus. Now, during this time, anointing someone with oil as they entered your house was not unusual. See, when a guest entered a home, the host would come and put a few drops of fragrant oil on your head. This was for a few reasons. Number one, it was refreshing. And number two, it smelled good. Remember, there's no deodorant, and they lived and worked in a very hot, arid climate. So this was probably not for the host's benefit as well, but for your fellow guests, right? It was a very usual custom, right? So what made what Mary did so unusual? See, Mary of Bethany did not anoint Jesus upon his arrival to their home, but actually when he was already eating. It's as if she didn't even care what she looked like or what she did. She wanted to break customs. And Mary of Bethany used the entire supply of her expensive perfume, not just a few drops, but she emptied out the entire thing as a gift. See, her act of worship and costly devotion was one of great value. She took something usual and made it unusually extravagant. This was an act of worship and costly devotion. It's also not about what Mary did, but how she did it. See, Mary of Bethany also did this gift-giving act of costly devotion herself. She made it personal. She did this full of love and devotion to Jesus. See, we can't give someone else the job of doing this on our behalf. An example, I think, is every day on Sunday, we gather together. I can't make you believe in Jesus. I can compel some amazing stories, but it's the power of God that allows you to do that. And just like we experience worship when we see so many gifted men and women in our church that are offering and leading us in worship, they can't do that for you. You actually have to worship and honor and praise God yourself. There is something very personal and very intimate about this act of worship. Just like Mary, she did this herself. See, and she didn't actually care about what other people were doing or thinking or feeling about her particular act. She chose to do this. And when she was done, she didn't ask others around her for their opinions. But just because she didn't ask for it doesn't mean that the disciples around her didn't also have opinions, right? We see this in verse 4. It says, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, because this usual turned unusual extravagant gift to Jesus is met with harsh criticism, my heart really goes out to Mary at this moment. Perhaps we might be able to relate to Mary in her moment like this. Have we ever been criticized for an act of service or love? Maybe we've been misunderstood or if it was really extravagant or zealous. Maybe we felt embarrassed or shameful or maybe we felt downright defensive. I've done that. Or maybe we actually can have a posture like Mary, who was so full of zeal and love for Jesus that she didn't care what she looked like. Remember our two questions that we're going to ask ourselves here about Mary. It's like, what doesn't Jesus want us to miss? And what does this mean for our discipleship to Jesus? 
One thing that sparks my intrigue when we further study this is in reference to the book of Matthew and John. The one who has the harshest criticism of this woman is Judas. Judas is particularly loud in grumbling about the waste which fuels the other disciples to join in. In John 12, 6, it reveals that while Judas claims to be concerned about the poor, he's actually more concerned about pocketing the money himself. In verse 12, 6, it says, He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The true motives are revealed in some of our initial discussion and outcry. Those around Jesus, quote, rebuked Mary for her wastefulness, most likely thinking that they were also defending Jesus' own position about the uses of resources and wealth. As we remember, back in Mark 12, we remember that story about the widow. She gave out of poverty. But she's similar to what Mary of Bethany is doing as well. It's here that actually the disciples think that they're defending Jesus' teachings. But here is irony, right? He's actually saying, like, you don't even know what you're doing. <laughs> like, you've missed the point, right? Actually, though, too, in verse 5, we also see the irony here, too, that this extravagant gift is actually given a price. So it's actually meant to be used as criticism, as actually adding weight and honor to Mary's extravagant gift. We see the disciples around Jesus chiming in protest in verse 6. We see how he says and responds to this criticism. He says, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. See, it's here that Jesus says that she is the only one at this gathering that understood the events surrounding Jesus' presence and purpose of him being here. She's the only one that got it. Jesus also affirms this woman's act of extravagance worship. This woman's offering is extravagant, and the way in which she gives it is a better indication of her intent than the value of the perfume. Jesus is saying, this is not bad stewardship. And it isn't wealth or extravagance that Jesus despises, it's idolatry. So, we might be asking ourselves, if this isn't about money or wealth, is this about the poor? Or really, what is it about, right? In verse 7, Jesus reveals the purpose of costly devotion of this woman. She said, or he says, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. It's here in the story that we can learn that the 12 disciples, even the most prominent followers of the Lord, could be wrong. And they were wrong here. Jesus is not saying, do not worry or care about the poor. No, this is actually going to remain an essential part of our discipleship. But what he is saying is that it must not take the place of the gospel. Jesus is also not categorizing, quote, the poor as a perpetual social reality, but to actually contextualize the act of Mary's costly devotion as something done for Jesus, not something done against a group of people. In fact, we remember that widow's offering in Mark 12 is also sandwiched with Mary's act of costly devotion here, and both of these women are model disciples of what it means to follow Jesus. This also feels Jesus' reply to his disciples. He's telling them, hey, remember, you missed the point. <laughs> of course we're going to take care of the poor and the poverty, 
This call will remain with the followers of Jesus, but I want you, my disciples, to pay attention. You need to focus here. My life is actually coming to an end, and my death is coming. Jesus further explains in verse 8, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospels preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I always wonder if this woman understands the spiritual and religious significance of what she just did, what her extravagant act of worship activated. So whether she comprehends this or not, she's full of faith. The act of generosity is also an act of kindness prior to Jesus' death and an act of faith. Not, and he anointed, and she anointed him not just for the death, but more importantly for his life and for the life of the world. So whether she understood or not, she still did what she could. And to do so, just like the widow in Mark 12, Mary also gave her all. They both gave what they could. She understood even before the disciples that Jesus was actually about to die. It's because of her love and devotion that she gave her highest compliment and honor to Jesus. She did what she could, and she gave what she had. Jesus also gives us another lesson about the kingdom here, too. He says, frugality is not always the appropriate attitude. There are times when expensive and sensual and extravagant attention is appropriate. This beautiful act of costly devotion served a greater purpose for Jesus. The disciples in the story are far from any such recognition. Remember, they missed the point, right? The purpose here of this woman anointing Jesus was to anoint him for burial. But also, the use of oils was used to establish kings, prophets, and priests. She recognized that Jesus' death is at hand and has provided a royal anointing that prepares his body for burial. So we see some elements in tension, too. Jesus, the Messiah who must die and be buried, prepared for death, but also the king who is to be recognized and anointed with expensive perfume. The action of this woman will be part of the good news because the action itself of her anointing him is the gospel. The women's act of extravagance was the gospel and the good news embodied. And by telling the story of this woman's anointing the body of Jesus, the good news of discipleship will be proclaimed wherever the gospel is preached, just like this morning. We're doing that in remembrance of her. So as we're studying this passage today, we are embodying this act of costly devotion, just like this woman, and the significance of what's happening in the life of Jesus. This should encourage us as an act of worship, for us to be extravagant in that. See, Jesus requires only what we can do, and Jesus desires costly devotion. So remember our two questions that we're going to ponder? We're going to ask them again in this story of extravagant worship. What doesn't Jesus want us to miss about this? And what does this actually mean for our discipleship to Jesus? Now, we're going to go to this other literal slice. We're going to, in contrast, it's going to be all about betrayal again. So in verse 10, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. 
It's here that the mood turns dark as Judas approaches the chief priests, offering to sorry betray Jesus to them. It's here, this deep act of betrayal is when Judas will tell them when and where Jesus will be. See, Judas's motivation is all about money. But we also know that money is rarely a reward in and of itself. It is all the things that money represents. Power, wealth, honor, success, and approval, which fuels the desire for it. With this betrayal and agreement, Judas returns to Jesus and the deceit continues as he watches for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Meaning, he has to pretend to still be a devoted follower and disciple of Jesus. See, Judas's devotion was also costly, but not the honoring kind. And for what? Money. Money and wealth and riches and all the things that he criticized Mary for. This passage should stir up this sense of tension and drama for us. What makes Judas's actions toward Jesus so ironic and paradoxical is that I've never stopped seeing Jesus that he loved Judas. Jesus loves Judas. He loved him and he's never stopped loving him. And Judas spent three years with Jesus, the son of God, and it did nothing to soften his heart or prevent him from betrayal in this moment. In Mark 3.14, it says Jesus appointed Judas as one of the twelve so that he might be with him. He appointed him as one of the twelve, the inner circle, because Jesus wanted to be with Jesus. And now, Judas' betrayal, he turned away from the intimacy by scheming to hand Jesus over, meaning it meant for him, he handed over everything of what it meant to be a disciple. It meant a willing, violent, and physical separation from him who appointed him. I can't think of a deeper betrayal like this of Judas and the deeper kind of cost that we have to reflect on. What did Judas trade in for that? For us as the reader, the author Mark throws some irony in here because we are actually made aware that Judas' actions are setting in motion God's prophetic promise that the true Messiah and king would be handed over and betrayed, it should cause us to pause and think. So we've gotten through our layers of the Markin sandwich. <laughs> I hope many things have come up for you in processing, but I also wanna pay attention to a couple more things as we close. See, Mark 14 isn't solely about a sandwich, right? The point for us as actually followers of Jesus is to not miss the things that Jesus desires to point out to us it's through those two vital questions that we ask ourselves, right? One, what doesn't, doesn't Jesus want us to miss? In this whole story, in the three layers, there's things there for us to uncover. The second one is what does this mean for our discipleship to Jesus? He wants to show us who he is and what he has come to do. He wants us to cling to the things that we are to learn about and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the larger picture here, not just the sandwich, was out about costly devotion. What I want us to see here and continue to reflect on that there are two very different storylines of Mary and Judas's relationship to Jesus and two very different forms of costly devotion. Both of these stories deal with love. And what I want us to see is that Jesus loved both Mary and Judas. He never stopped loving them. 
And also both of these stories deal with death, one with betrayal and one with honor. And as we continue to process, we ask ourselves, are there aspects of Mary or Judas's lives that we see in ours? It's those two questions again. I see Judas, who has made this climactic decision to betray Jesus for money at the cost of his closeness to Jesus. We can personally ask, what was so costly for Judas? Are we possibly like Judas in some aspects? Are we somehow rejecting Jesus? Are there things that are costing you your closeness to Jesus? We always have invitations to turn to him. Or are we identifying with Mary, someone whose love for Jesus has compelled her to give an act of extravagance to Jesus as worship and a gift? Hers was costly devotion. But what can we learn from this extravagant act of love? And are we willing to invest in the things that last for eternity? Maybe they're not going to make sense to anyone else, but are we willing to be extravagant in our worship? And also, how are we responding personally and intimately with Jesus? See, Mary embodied this kind of physical act where she did did not just listen to it, but she responded with her body. She did something. And her act of devotion was compelled by love and was intimate and personal. No one else could do this act of worship for her. And also, Mary did this not just for herself, but for one of honor. See, her act of costly devotion had much more significance than she realized. I think of her when she anointed Jesus' head, not just for his burial, but because he was the king. So we're going to close and ponder these two questions for us. The first one is, what doesn't Jesus want us to miss? What is there something for us that we don't want to miss in our lives? And two, what does this mean for our discipleship to Jesus? See, Jesus doesn't want us to miss the deeper truth about who he really is, what he's come to do for you and for me and for the world, and that he's actually worthy of our costly devotion. Let me pray for us. 